Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is Andre from The Mental Health, and I'm here with Anir Cariello, and she is a clinical health psychology resident at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She's also doing a PhD at the Virginia Commonwealth University in the States. Now, Anir is the winner of the Vera Pasta Award at the Together for Action 2020 conference this year, and she's giving a talk at the event on community healthcare unique mental health needs and culturally sensitive interventions in Latinxes. So it's great to have you on the podcast. And I think really, first of all, congratulations for winning this award. Um, looking forward to hearing your talk when you present at this online event. Um, for those of us who don't know too much about what's going on currently in the US, uh, for those of us who may be unfamiliar with the Latinx community, um, could you give us a bit of background information to start off with? Tell us what life is like right now for Latinx refugees and immigrants in the US. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very excited to be um, part of this podcast. Uh, so uh, starting kind of with the uh, 2016 um, election actually is when um, kind of these like anti-immigrant um, like social political climate started to emerge. Um, based off of the current president of the United States. Um, he started scapegoating a lot of um, like economic um, unhappiness or just um, like in general lot of, lack of satisfaction in, in the United States and scapegoated with um, ethnic and racial minorities, but very specifically um, Latinx immigrants and refugees that they were um, quote unquote taking our jobs um, quote unquote, like changing America to kind of anger um, and build support for his political campaign. Um, so the current president um, is a, a large piece as to why Latino immigrants have such a negative experience in the United States. Um, and so based off of uh, the Pew Research um, Center did a, a telephone survey in 2018 with um, about 1,500 Latinos living in the United States. Um, and what they reported and what Latinos have reported is that their situation in the United States has just deteriorated um, and has gotten worse over the last year, uh, mostly because most Latinx individuals worry that they, a family member or a friend, will be deported. More than 50% are kind of consistently anxious um, that they will be deported. Um, Trump has actually deported like U.S. citizens that were Latino that were not provided um, like their uh, right as a, as a United States citizen to have checks and balances to ensure that they were citizens. They kind of just are deported without legal representation, kind of without any choices. Um, about 67% report that specifically the Trump administration has been harmful to the community. Um, over 60% are dissatisfied with the direction. Um, and when you combine that with COVID, now you have this highly marginalized, highly discriminated group um, that now has unemployment at historic lows because they work uh, primarily in um, like, uh, service-based employment, um, and so they're they're furloughed or they've been fired, um, and then on top of that, about forty percent report an increase of discrimination, at least an increase of like four incidences of discrimination. Um, and what I love about my community, what I love about 
um, Latinos is that there is this amazing resiliency found within um, the people within the culture. And that was expressed in this study that they talked about that like over 30% heard expressions of support by other, um, by other races and ethnicities in the United States. And that, you know, 97% are very proud of their heritage, even though it's being attacked. And 84% reported that they were really proud of being an American and proud of being in the United States. And so even though there's a subset that, um, and our current um, like presidential administration is very uh, discriminatory and very prejudiced against um, Latinx individuals and especially immigrants and especially refugees. Um, they still um, seek out and are provided support as well as like are still proud of who they are, right? They, this, um, there's less internalization of shame because of kind of cultural buffers um, that are embedded in the culture, which I'm just really proud of because that shows like hope and resilience and see in the most horrific circumstances. There's lots of parallels with what's going on here in the UK in terms of our government and their approach to, to immigrants and the response from the people in the country. We've seen a large rise in kind of racist attacks and discrimination from a significant proportion of the population and then also a big backlash against that from people fighting for, for human rights for people. Um, it's a it's a difficult time. It's a challenging time on, in so many ways, isn't it? But the the political climate certainly isn't helping. And it's so interesting because um, right. So I I work like a, a large chunk of my clinical work was with um, these like Latinx immigrants and refugees. Um, and uh, this this climate has actually brought a lot of individuals to seek mental health care that never had like any mental health um, distress previously. And what's really interesting is that all of them left their countries to provide a better life for their children, provide a better life for themselves and their children, um, that they are, were seeking a refuge where they were safe, where they um, their lives and the lives of their children weren't um, like actively threatened and where they could work and receive comp compensation for their pay, where they had access to food. Um, so these like really basic, um, if you think of like the Maslow hierarchy of needs, like we're talking about the most basic need um, of like food and shelter and safety is what brought individuals to the United States because that was not provided in their countries of origin. Um, and a lot of times it was because of previous um, like previous involvement in the United States and their governments um, and kind of like this interference of the United States in this global um, political scale has now led countries, other countries to be unstable and therefore seeking refuge, refuge in the United States. Um, so I think it's pretty um, comical and ironic that the United States creates um, lack of stability in these countries for whatever reason, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and then is angry when the country's um, citizens are now coming to the United States to seek refuge. Um, this isn't just a, a concern of right now. This is something that has built based off of this United States belief that it needs to police the world, um, which it doesn't because that's just so ethnocentric of us that we need to go and continue to colonize the world with our political beliefs. Um, and then we get angry when we have to live with the consequences of it. Thank you for saying that. It's a really important perspective and it's good to hear it coming from you rather than being suggested by an English man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so 
yeah, let's let's talk positively now about the solution to some of these issues or a part of the solution. Your, your talk is going to look at the importance of cultural competencies when serving ethnic and racial minorities. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what, what cultural competencies are and, and what the evidence is that they work in a beneficial way for people? Sure. So um, within like all healthcare, but especially within mental health services, cultural competency means that the provider um, possesses cultural knowledge and skills of a particular culture to deliver effective interventions in that culture, um, and that the individual is able to move between two cultural perspectives and understanding how um, there's like cultural meaning for clients that come from diverse cultural backgrounds, and you kind of do so in four different ways. Um, So Betchart in 2003 outlined kind of four um, major areas the, the, the importance of addressing them. And so first is within cultural competency, acknowledging the importance of incorporating culture into um, assessment and into kind of our conceptualization of patients, um, vigilance and really understanding differences and dynamics that result from cultural differences and not pathologizing them. Um, the responsibility of the practitioner to continually expand on cultural knowledge um, that it is inappropriate for a clinician to ask a patient to educate them on their on their culture, that it is within our responsibility to be um, as educated as we can be to provide service, and that we need to adapt to all interventions to meet the cultural needs um, at all levels of service for patients. Um, I think it's really important that all clinicians, and this is kind of what the literature adds to as well, that um, the knowledge and clinical applications is crucial to have an understanding of the patient's cultural background because that is a foundation. That is um, not something you can separate from a patient or a client. So not only uh, is there kind of this um, understanding within the mental health community that it's really crucial to have cultural competency as clinicians, um, there's also empirical support for um, the necessity of it in mental health care. Um, So specifically, um, Gerner and Smith in 2006 published a meta-analysis, like a a meta-analytic review, which talked about the efficacy of culturally adapted mental health interventions, um, such that they found that across 76 studies, um, there was a um, moderately strong benefit of culturally adapted interventions, such that interventions that targeted a specific cultural group were four times more effective um, than those that weren't culturally competent and that interventions conducted in um, a client's native language, basically anything other than English, was twice as effective as an intervention conducted in English. Um, So I uh, am privileged in the fact that I am bilingual. I speak both English and Spanish. Um, And I found that within my practice, as well as um, my fellow trainees, where I could provide Spanish language services to the Latinx community and especially to immigrants and refugees. And that because of that, um, one, like a core piece of mental health care is being seen and heard by your therapist or by psychologist your psychologist. And it's really difficult to do that with a translator where um, it's very difficult to express empathy or kindness um, or just, you know, basic human connection when your services are being translated um, into whatever language. And so like I found um, it to be really crucial whenever I provided services, I tried the best I can to provide them in the language or tongue or dialect of the patient. 
and like I can't be proficient in all dialects of Central and South America. Um, and so I spent quite a bit of time at the beginning when I worked with, um, there, I worked with a lot of individuals from El Salvador and Guatemala and Nicaragua. Um, and I had to like write down words and go home and looked up what they meant because I didn't know like the specific, um, there's some dialectic language that I wasn't aware of. But once again, it was my responsibility as a mental health provider to go and look up that information and become educated in that language, not have the patient define it for me. What about the ways in which mental health manifests itself in different communities and the way that it's viewed in different communities and the cultural differences in, in how we view mental illness and also the, the, the struggles that a lot of people have in actually accessing services. Um, how do services themselves need to develop to be culturally competent and accessible for people from different minority ethnic groups? Sure. Um, so to start with your first question, which is how is mental health um, experienced um, or perceived in the Latinx culture. Uh, and so there is a very, very high stigma in the Latinx culture. Um, patients are very afraid of being identified as quote unquote local, which means crazy. Um, that if they need help from a mental health provider, that means that they are insane and um, or crazy. And that would lead to like ostracization within the culture. Um, so a lot of um, what really helps bridge and like decrease that stigma um, is the way that it's discussed and then also who provides referrals. So I was very lucky to work in integrated healthcare um, where patients would present with their physicians um, and, and actually present with a lot of psychosomatic complaints. And so that would be like constant headaches, um, a lot of like muscle soreness uh, and a lot of insomnia. I would receive a lot of referrals for patients that were just couldn't sleep and their sleep was affecting their mood and was affecting their ability to kind of function as and do their different roles in life. Um, and so having a provider say like, okay, you have this concern. We have somebody that specializes in sleep that you can go and you can see her for, you know, three or four sessions and she can help you with your insomnia. Um, and so really having a like integrated healthcare approach really helped bridge and decrease that stigma. I would also at my first um, sessions with every patient, bring this up. Um, I would, I would, with any patient validate their experiences and talk about how it was a 100% normal or adaptive approach to whatever stressor they were encountering. But especially with Latinos, I would specifically tell them that they were not crazy. Um, and I would bring it up in session and say like, you know, no, it is loca, like you're not crazy. Um, this is a normal response and that would help decrease a lot of stigma. And then when I had positive experiences or when patients had positive experiences with me, we'd have a discussion of the importance of like telling friends and family um, of their experience. Because of course, since it's a collectivistic culture, they're speaking about other family members that might also be distressed and how to help them, right? Which is the beauty of Latino culture is that individuals can be distressed and they're still thinking of those that they love and how they wanna help them. 
And that was part of our discussion around, okay, you're concerned for your, you know, XYZ individual in your family. How would you feel about talking about what your experiences were like in mental health counseling, how you found it helpful and kind of encourage them to seek a referral. And some individuals were very much open to it and said, yeah, I'm telling everybody, this is so great. Like we've been missing out on this amazing service. Um, and other individuals were still, um, you know, sitting in that, uh, cultural understanding of what it means to seek mental health services. Uh, so that's kind of how I addressed it and would encourage other mental health professionals to address um, this kind of mental health stigma. Um, my hope to bridge care is to always provide integrated health care for patients to be supported in seeking whatever services they need and that for providers to encourage um, each other and encourage um, patients seeking specialized care with specialized providers. Um, and then you related two or three other questions that I am trying to recall. I'm just interested in how, what you know and what you've learned about working with your community can be applied to other people who have, who are mental health providers in other settings. So, you know, I spoke to somebody earlier today who's a therapist mm -hmm. in the UK um, and she provides um, talking treatments and she is really interested in making them more accessible to a wider ethnic mix of people because at the moment she doesn't get any referrals from anybody who isn't white basically <laughs> and she's thinking you know, how can the service develop so it's more accessible to this community we know there are lots of people struggling right now but they don't ask for help so I'm, I'm wondering what you can apply from your learning to other people in a similar situation who are trying to bridge that gap in terms of services? Sure. Um, so I'm really sad for this other clinician that um, isn't receiving services or isn't receiving referrals for these type of services. So what I've learned from my practice is one, um, providing individuals services in their native tongue is a big deal. Um, so a lot of patients were willing to come to me as a clinician because their provider said, oh, she speaks Spanish, she's fluent in Spanish. Um, so that was one, something very important that if providers wanna service um, this population, they, they really need to learn the language. Um, and second, I actually have had the opposite experience where a lot of individuals are seeking services. They are just seeking it from individuals that can provide it in culturally competent ways and in their native tongue. Um, and so, yeah, I would say like, that's really important. Um, and then working in general with the Latino population, it's important to understand their culture, which is the basis of this entire podcast around cultural competency. Um, it was really important to me to understand that, um, a patient might come in and be speaking a lot about their family and how their family is distressed. And that's not an avoidance, right? Sometimes with an individualistic culture, uh, talking about others and not talking about your own concerns would be perceived as anxiety or avoidance. Um, but within that culture, like within the Latino culture, speaking about your family and the distress of your family um, is core to their distress because when the system is distressed, they are distressed. Um, because within this collectivistic culture, the system is um, their haven. I would say as well as really understanding familial roles and how familial roles impact their, um, their distress. And so uh, my case example that I'm presenting 
on Friday um, talks about a female that had no history of mental health concerns and she was coming in to um, seek services because of insomnia. That was the referral question, but it, it ended up being episodic anxiety and episodic in, insomnia because um, they were afraid of being deported. Uh, and then also because her children were being actively bullied in school. So her children were really distressed um, and that led to her distress because she did not know how to address or help her children. And so because of that, and because she sought help from family members and from friends, and they also didn't know how to address this um, spike in bullying that also is occurred because of um, the social political climate in the United States based off of our president um, and his presentation. And so like, that's what led her, right? So like Latinos will, exhaust all of their resources. They will reach out to family, they will reach out to friends to try to address whatever concern they have. And then if those resources don't provide what they need, they're more likely to seek mental health care. And so one of the beautiful, re like when we look at the literature and look at what is what buffers mental health distress in Latinos is this collectivistic um, approach and then also religiosity of a lot of Latinos um, turn to their spirituality or turn to their um, different religious practices to kind of help with their um, distress, which we know in a vast literature um, that those are all massive buffers, both um, kind of social support and religiosity or buffers to mental health. And so the community might be, you know, being actively discriminated against and be treated poorly. And then they tap into their um, cultural strengths and they tap into their family um, and kind of like familial resources. And then when that, you know, when, when there's just a lack of expertise, which is why you would go to like a medical physician as well, um, they'll seek out care. Uh, and so I think helping Latinos seek mental health care is, is the way that it is described. And then also um, if Latinos know that they try to see a therapist and the therapist doesn't speak their language, um, or kind of doesn't know their experience. I know often in the first session, patients would ask me where I learned Spanish or how I learned Spanish um, because they wanna know what country I'm from. They wanna know what is my cultural background. And we know that um, a lot within multiple racial and ethnic minorities and especially with Latinos, um, they expect um, disclosure from their clinicians um, and kind of this active listening approach where um, I often disclosed where I learned Spanish and the countries of origin of my parents and my parents' immigration status and how it affected our family. And also I would very much own my privilege that I was born in the United States and that I was documented and that um, though, you know, the extreme right would want me to lose my citizenship um, because my parents weren't citizens when I was born. Like that's, you know, I'm still a naturalized citizen and the likelihood of that is very, very minute. Um, and so we talked about, you know, cultural strengths and things that tied us together, but also I owned the privilege that I didn't hold the same anxiety of being deported as they did. Um, I did empathize because my family was threatened with de deportation and um, individuals that I love and, and um, very, very close family friends of, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in the United States were threatened with deportation. And so um, a big part of cultural competence 
competency not only is understanding the patient's culture and their perspective um, and how you align, but also how you do not align with a patient um, to kind of prevent overgeneralization with patients. And then also for patients to know that you understand that you're in different situations, that you have privileges that they don't. That doesn't mean that you can't serve or help them, but that helps acknowledge um, kind of their position and really validate their position. Part of the work that I did with the individual I'm doing my case presentation on was really validating the real world, real world threat to her family. We spent quite a bit of time discussing, okay, so if yourself or your spouse were to be deported, where would your children go? Who would take care of your children? Who do you trust with your children in the United States? Because her children were naturalized in the United States. They were born here. And so they would not be deported. Um, and so kind of talking about the real world threat to herself and to her spouse um, and that he was leaving the home in order to work and provide for their family. Um, and so if he was deported, what was the plan for her? If they were both deported, what was the plan for their children? Um, because this, is, this was a, a threat for them. And I didn't diminish that. Um, and I didn't pathologize that because that wasn't something core to her. It was very much circumstantial. And, um, and we talked about kind of what it was like to be threatened to be separated from her children and to not be um, potentially not be reunited. And then also kind of the fear because in the news, it was talking about individuals that were being detained and individuals that were being separated from their children. And that at times, those children were not being reunited with their family members and that individuals in detention centers in the United States were being um, physically and sexually abused and especially young children, right? Like these parents were terrified that these things would occur to their children. Um, and so any parent, could, would never want to be forcibly separated from their children or for their children to set, end up in a situation where they would be harmed and severely abused. Um, and so I think cultural competency is understanding that, understanding their circumstances and the, under, and the um, kind of history of different patients. I worked with a woman from Cuba and we, I became very quickly, um, she spent a lot of time talking about kind of the social political climate in Cuba and like the historic um, like political system in Cuba that I was not very familiar with. And so I went home and I researched Cuba and I spent probably two or three hours learning about its history, learning about how it impacted its citizens, learning kind of the different restrictions that were placed on the people because of the um, communist state because it was crucial for her because she grew up in this system. She grew up um, in these circumstances that helped formulate the way that she was anxious now um, within the social political climate in the United States. And she was a resident, but she was still afraid to be deported um, because of kind of the, the lack of respect for, um, for Latinos in the United States and kind of diminish, the, like diminishing or dismissing um, the rights of naturalized citizens just because they were identified as Latino and therefore deported. Um, so that's really crucial for me um, that, you know, at the end of the day, every one of my patients is a mother or a daughter or a spouse or a grandchild that wants to be safe and that wants their family to be safe and when that system's threatened um, and they don't know how to create that safety, it leads them to seek help because 
it's so important to them. It's so crucial to them. Mm -hmm.